So this morning's reading is continuing in Mark. We are chapter 6, starting verse 30, and that's on page 1009. So Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida where he dis while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, "'Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. 
and wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, please speak to us through your word as we think about these amazing events which took place at the Sea of Galilee so long ago. Please give us hearts and minds which are receptive and which are open. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the movie City Slickers, the lead character Mitch is played by Billy Crystal. And Mitch is a city boy going through a midlife crisis like us city boys sometimes do. So Mitch and his friends decide to go on a cattle drive, just like real men did in the old days. And that's where they meet Curly. And Curly is played by Jack Palance. Curly's from a bygone era. He's a crunchy, old, scary cowboy who'd just as soon shoot you as say good morning. <laughs> and there's a memorable scene in the movie. They're ambling along on their horses, side by side, when scary Curly turns to city boy Mitch and he says, you know what the secret to life is? What? says Mitch. Curly looks at him and he says, it's this, one thing. It's just one thing. You figure out that one thing and nothing else matters a snitch. And he's right. He's absolutely right. The secret to life is one thing. It's an answer to one question. And the question is this. Who is Jesus Christ? Was he just a man or did he carry what we might call the hallmarks of divinity? That's the one thing, because the answer to that thing changes everything. And that's what today's passage is actually about. The fact that Jesus fed over 5,000 people is not the main point. The fact that he walked on the water is not the main point. The main point is what these miracles say about his identity, about who he really is. That's the main point. So why believe in miracles? Why believe in miracles at all? Most people, even if they claim to believe in God, think miracles are like fairy, fairy tales. There's something which only the deluded and the slightly dangerous believe in. And some liberal theologians, men like William Barclay, go to ridiculous lengths to explain miracles away. They'll ignore the evidence and the facts regarding a miracle and they'll impose their own facts. They'll say things like, People brought their own pack lunch and shared. Really? It's not what it says. Or, you know, Jesus was walking along a sandbank and not on the water. Those experienced sailors were struggling right next to a sandbank. Or Jesus and the disciples prepared the food beforehand and hid it in a nearby cave for over 5,000 people. There's no mention of a bakery and there's no handy whale lying around that I can see in the passage because that's what it would take. There's frankly no evidence to support any of those views in any historical document whatsoever. 
It's intellectual dishonesty. It's what I like to call just making stuff up. They could at least be honest about the real reason for their doubts, because the real reason has nothing to do with the miracles per se. The real reason with it for their doubts has to do with their view of God. If God created the universe, if he is not your own little God defined on your own terms, then why on earth are miracles unreasonable or unscientific? It's irrational to claim on the one hand that you believe in a real God, and then to claim on the other hand that miracles can't happen. If he created the laws of the universe, then for him to suspend them is just a trivial nothing in one level, right? J. Bushashevsky, you need to say that carefully or it gets embarrassing. J. Bushashevsky teaches ethics and political philosophy at the University of Texas. He earned his PhD at Yale. Jay wasn't just an atheist, he was a nihilist. So he believed that there's no God, therefore there's no absolute right and wrong, therefore our existence is meaningless, so we may as well wipe it all out. But Jay became a Christian, fortunately before he acted on his beliefs, which is a relief. And in one of his books, Jay, Jay says this, when some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent and educated to achieve. And he then goes on to give a number of really honest reasons why he was a nihilist. Very good reasons. But then he says this, the main reason I was a nihilist, the reason that tied all these other reasons together was sheer mulish pride. I didn't want God to be God. I wanted J. Bushashevsky to be God. I see that now, but I didn't see it then. Jay's original disbelief in miracles had nothing to do with miracles. It had everything to do with the fact that he couldn't tolerate the implications of the miraculous because it would mean acknowledging the existence of God and Jay didn't want God to be God. Jay wanted to be God. So on the assumption that a real God exists and that the miracles are therefore feasible and entirely reasonable for such a God, one of the questions we should ask, obviously, is why? Why perform them at all? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Now, we tend to think that Christ performed miracles for the benefit of the patients, right? For, to be merciful, to relieve suffering, and so on. We tend to think he made it about the people. Now, it's true, he did miraculously relieve suffering, but that's secondary. That wasn't his main purpose for performing miracles. That wasn't his main reason. His main reason was to answer Curly's question. That's why he performed miracles. It was to show and to prove who he really was. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching to the Jews and he says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you 
through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus was a man accredited by God through miracles. They were proof of the truth of his message. They were the proof of his identity. And Peter confirms his identity later in that same sermon. He says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The miracles that Jesus performed had one goal above all others, to show that he was Lord and Christ, to show that he was God, to show that he was Messiah. They're hallmarks of divinity, and they point to his real identity. That's what the miracles were for. But very few of them are as loaded and as pregnant with significance as the ones we see today. The feeding of the 5,000 and the resurrection are the only miracles reported in all four Gospels. And all four Gospel writers therefore knew how significant this day was, how significant these events were. It's a day in which Christ shows that he carries three unique hallmarks of divinity. He's the great shepherd, he's the great provider, and he's the great I am. So firstly, he's the great shepherd. Now, Jesus had sent the apostles out, and he'd sent them out with a message of repentance. And to authenticate their message, he gave them the ability to perform certain miracles. So look back at verse 6 in your passage. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So they go out. The word spreads rapidly about the miracles being performed by Christ and by the apostles. Even King Herod hears about what's going on if you look at verse 1. The apostles eventually return to tell Jesus about the amazing things that they've seen. They're excited, they're elated, but they're also really, really exhausted. So he decides that they need some rest and they, they all bail out into a boat and they set off. But as they set off, the people on the shore see where they're going, and they work out the direction they're heading in. And word spreads around. And as more and more people follow along the shore, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, Jesus looks at them. And he knows that they don't get the guidance, they don't get the truth, they don't get the leadership that they so desperately need. So he feels compassion for them. And that word, compassion, in the original means a deep, gut-wrenching feeling of compassion. Remorse, almost. So he knows that they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he returns to the shore. So look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. He starts to teach them, he starts to minister to them, and Matthew tells us that he also healed some of them. He becomes a shepherd to them. So that's the first thing you need to notice. He becomes a shepherd to them. But secondly, did you also notice that curious little bit of detail in verse 39? Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, writing of this type, and especially in this era, didn't have atmospheric detail. This isn't a John Grisham novel that, you know, sets the mood by reflecting on the sound of the wind rustling through the treetops and on the lush rolling lawn. So when Mark refers to shepherd and green grass, he's making a particular point. He's telling you something. In the Old Testament, the shepherd motif is applied to Joshua, it's applied to David, 
but above all, it's a motif that God applies to himself. So in Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel is rebuking the leaders of the day for not caring for the people, and this is what he says. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. You, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, are my people, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. God reveals himself as the great shepherd of his people. But probably the best known Old Testament passage for us, which speaks about God the shepherd, and which is obviously the backdrop of what Mark is saying, is Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides my paths. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's what Mark is trying to convey. The shepherd of Ezekiel and the shepherd of the Psalms is the shepherd who's about to perform these miracles. And in John chapter 10, Jesus explicitly confirms his identity as that great saving shepherd when he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is the one who answers the crowd's questions with truth and insight that they never hear from the temple leaders. He's the one who feeds their souls. He's the one who guides them in the paths of righteousness. He's the shepherd who provides them with eternal life. He's the one who stops the boat to do that. That's what we see being lived out here. But they aren't all prepared to accept it, and neither are we, are we? Mainly because it means relinquishing our throne. We're not all prepared to confess what J. Butchashevsky did, namely that to be shepherded, I have to forsake myself. I have to acknowledge that God must be God over my life. That's what God wants of us. We must, if we want to save our lives, be prepared to lose them to Christ. Rosaria Butterfield, in her autobiography, which has a brilliant title, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, a very, very good book. She says this, I needed and need faithful shepherding. I had to lean and lean hard on the full weight of Scripture, on the fullness of the Word of God, and I'm grateful that when I heard the Lord's call on my life and I wanted to hedge my bets, when I wanted to keep my girlfriend and I wanted to add a little God to my life, that I had a pastor and friends in the Lord who asked nothing less of me than that I die to myself. And that's our big struggle, is dying to ourselves in the first place and then doing it daily, right? And she's right. I mean, think of the benefits and think of the blessings and think of an unspeakable privilege of being faithfully shepherded by the God of the universe. That's your life if you're a believer. A beggar's belief. It's incredible that God should do this for sinners like us, but he does. That's the first hallmark of a divinity in this passage. Jesus is that great shepherd. But secondly, he's also the great provider. It's getting late. You're really tired, and you've got that 
ache that's just here between your eyeballs. And you sidle up to a few of the other apostles, and you have a little chat. You all agree that this whole thing needs to get wrapped up, and it needs to get wrapped up now because we want to go to bed. So a few of you get together and you go up to Jesus, and being very firm, you say, in verse 35, this is a remote place, and it's already very late. Send the people away, firmly, so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus looks at you with one of those looks, and he says more firmly, you feed them. That's how it is. You feed them. What? There's over 5,000 people here. That's ridiculous. So you reply, that would take like eight months' wages. Is that what we must spend now? Jesus completely unreasonably replies, go and see how much food you have. Okay, so you go and you start asking around, and you kind of come up empty. Right? We learn from John's account that Andrew arrives with a little boy's pack lunch. And that's it. You report back. We've got five loaves and two fish. These aren't hovis loaves. These are like small, flat, round barley loaves. There's no bakery. There's no whale. Okay? Small, flat, round barley loaves and two teeny little fish. Jesus looks at you and he says, arrange the crowd into groups on the grass. <coughs> okay. What's going to happen now? And Mark then says, in his account, that Jesus took the food once. He gave thanks once. He broke the barley loaves once. And then he uses a continuous sense that we don't have in English. And he gave, 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 and he gave. And they had to keep coming back, and they had to keep giving. And they kept coming back, and he kept giving. So another version more helpfully translates verse 41 like this. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. And at the end of it all, over 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children, have all had plenty, and there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers to spare. What's going on here? Firstly, please note, as I've emphasized, that he kept on giving and giving and giving. Secondly, look at where they are. Now, the NIV doesn't help here. The word for quiet in verse 31, when Jesus says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, is far better translated as desolate or a wilderness. That same word is used in verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary, a desolate Place. And in verse 35, same word. This is a remote, a desolate place. Three times he says it. They're in a desolate place like a wilderness. The food doesn't stop coming. They're arranged in groups like the tribes in Israel were. There are 12 basketfuls of food echoing the 12 tribes of Israel. What major event in the Old Testament is being replayed here? Well, the Exodus. It's the Exodus. When God provides manna for the Israelites in the desert, same miracle, same setting, same God. This is the God of the Old Testament with these people now on the shore of the Lake, Gal of the Lake Galilee. But there's something else going on as well. 
because Jesus is also giving them a personal lesson. It really presses them when he uses a word that's very firm and forceful in the original when he says, you give them something to eat. Now, why does he do that? Everyone knew it was impossible. Why does he send them scrambling around for crumbs? Why doesn't he just provide like with the manna, you know, appears out of nothing? Or just turn the stones, you definitely stones lying around, turn them into food. Why doesn't he do that? Surely that would have been even more impressive. He does it because he wants the disciples in this desolate place, and us here in lush Basingstoke, to all realize that we're dependent on God, that we can never bring enough. That's why. He wants them to understand that what they have, what they can bring to the table, is never enough. He's pushing them to realize that in their own strength, they can't do what he wants them to do. He's the one who has to provide. They have to keep coming back to him again and again and again for him to provide. And if they didn't realize their dependence then, they sure would later on. Look at verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. It's the end of a long day. They're shattered. Jesus doesn't let them kind of relax on the shore, build the fire, chill out. He says, get in the boat and start rowing to the other side. They obey. It's evening. He sees the disciples straining, as it says in verse 48. And the word there is being tormented, being battered. They're rowing against a severe headwind. Now look at the second half of verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. The fourth watch of the night is the Roman term for between three and six in the morning. He's been there since the evening. He leaves them out there, utterly exhausted from the day and the work that's happened up to now, battling and rowing for all they're worth, getting nowhere for at least six hours before he goes out. Why? Why doesn't he just go out to them immediately? Why doesn't he just calm the wind from the shore where he's standing? It's because he wants them to realize that their own strength isn't enough. He wants them and us to acknowledge our dependence on him to graciously provide. As Jay realized, we need him to provide grace to unseat us from the throne of our personal lives to save us. We need him to provide food, which we really take for granted nowadays. And we need him to provide relief from the struggles in life because either you're in a boat tortuously rowing now in your life or one day you will be. We need him to provide even when we think we have a way to achieve what needs to be achieved because we actually never do. They didn't. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, page 1166. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 12, page 1166. Now Paul, 
He's talking about pride. He's talking about how he could boast about what God had revealed to him in his life. That's what he's talking about. And he says this, reading from verse 7. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, these revelations that he'd received, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We don't know if he had a physical problem or if it was something else. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul delights in his thorn, in his weakness, because he then depends on a far greater strength, that of Christ himself. And that's a massive lesson for all of us, isn't it? He does provide the daily things that we need. He does come striding across an ocean to our aid, even if he put us in the boat in the first place. And he does equip us to do the things that sometimes we have to do, even if it means withstanding the impossible, even if it means being brutally murdered by ISIS terrorists on a beach. Jesus is the great shepherd, and he is the great provider. Lastly, he's also the great I am. Reading from where we left off, halfway through verse 48. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So we've looked at why Jesus leaves them out there for as long as he does. But this event still raises a few other questions. Why in verse 48 was Jesus going to pass by them? What was that all about? Is that how he usually got across the lake? You know? Was he like, morning, and carry on strolling? <laughs> what is he showing by walking on the water at all? What is he showing by seeming to pass by them? Well, once again, he's taking them back to what they know that God and only God can do. When they see Jesus is in control of the water, subduing it so that he can walk on it, and walking on it, it takes them back to the time in Exodus 14 when God held back the waters to allow Israel to cross safely in front of the Egyptians. When they see Jesus about to pass by them, it takes them back to the time in Exodus 33 when Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face and live. And God puts Moses in a cleft in the rock and passes by him. It's a very specific phrase. When they see Jesus about to pass by them, it takes them back to the time in 1 Kings 19 when Elijah saw God pass by him as a gentle whisper. Same phrase. And now they see Jesus pass by them, doing precisely what God did. But even more explicitly, 
Look at Job chapter 9 on page 515. Job chapter 9, page 515. Now Job's in a terrible situation. He's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, he's lost his health. And he has some friends who are giving him some distinctly unhelpful advice. And in response to some of their comments, Job emphasizes how powerful and how majestic and how holy God is. Reading from verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? My goodness, could it be any clearer? He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. When Moses and Elijah, what Moses and Elijah and Job see God do, the apostles see Christ do on this day. The descriptions of what God does and of God's power are descriptions of what Jesus does and of Jesus' power. It's incredibly obvious the God of the Old Testament is with them in the boat. And then to really make the point, having stepped into the boat, Jesus calms the wind and he says in verse 50, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. I am is the literal translation of the phrase, it is I. Now that was a phrase used in a few ways by the Israelites, but in a certain context it's intended to make us feel all, because it was how God referred to himself. So Moses is standing in front of the burning bush. He's trembling because he knows he's in front of and speaking to Jehovah, to God himself. God's going to commission him to lead the Israelites from Egypt. Moses is not keen on this new job because he knows that he's not up to it. So he asks, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is God's expression of personal identity. It's how he refers to himself as the self-sufficient one. We're not self-sufficient. We're dependent. Our existence is defined by reference to God because we're made by him, and as we've seen, we're dependent upon him. God's existence is not defined by reference to or dependence upon any other being. He's entirely self-sufficient. So the only being with the claim to the title I am is the self-sufficient God of all creation. And that's why later on, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am, they want to kill him. Because for anyone but God to lay claim to that title was something which invoked the death penalty. So when Jesus strolls across the sea, 
when he approaches as if to pass by them, when he calms the wind and says, take courage, I am, don't be afraid, then what's he saying? What's he demonstrating? What's he proving? He's proving I am in control. I am who I am. He's proving that I am the same one who gave Moses the courage he needed, so there's really no need to fear. That's what he's doing. But how do they react? Look at verse 51. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Now the word for amazed is really, really strong. It's translated in other versions as astounded. And you can even translate it as insane. That's how strong the word is. They were totally gobsmacked, they were flabbergasted, they were shocked. Now on the one hand, that's perfectly understandable, right? Seeing what they just seen, Jesus, water, wind, passed by, the whole thing. But on the other hand, it's inexcusable. Look at verse 52. Why were they amazed? For they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. They still didn't get it. The word for understood there is literally that they had not put it together. It's literally what the word is. They had not joined the dots. They didn't get who they were dealing with. And they should have realized with the loaves at the feeding of the 5,000, if not before. Now just remember, they've at this point seen Jesus heal Simon's mother-in-law. They've seen him heal a paralytic. They've seen him heal a man with a withered hand. They've seen him heal hundreds of people. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him feed over 5,000 people from a boys' packed lunch, but still they're shocked and amazed when he proves his identity yet again by walking on the water and calming the wind. They should not have been so completely astounded. Amazed in one sense, absolutely. Honored him, yes. Worshipped him. Yes. It would even have been preferable if they turned to him and said, Rabbi, finally, what took you so long? That would have been better. But to be utterly astounded that he even has this ability? No. They should know by now. The problem is, amazement isn't faith. You can be utterly astounded, you can be astonished, but you can still have a resistant hardened heart which lacks faith. They didn't get it for the same reason that J. Bushashevsky didn't get it. They had resistant, hardened hearts. And before we point fingers, are we really any different? When we're in our boat, rowing manically, do we keep on rowing or do we stand up and look for Christ? And the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews chapter 3. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's really easy for us to let the tortuous rowing, and even the kind of the mundane day-to-day -day get in the way and harden our hearts, isn't it? It's easy for us to forget what he's saying. Go to Christ Fix your thoughts on Christ. But how? Well, he tells us, he says, hear his voice. Where do we find his voice? We find it in the word and in prayer. We easily forget what the old Puritans used to say. Attend to the means of grace. What they meant was that put yourself under the means that God uses to dispense grace. That's not easy to say, 
It's hard to remember when you're tired and you're debating about whether to read his word or come to midweek or go to church or go to house group or whatever. It's easy to forget it then, but we need to be encouraged. We need to remember that this is how God engages with us through the means of grace. It's when you put yourself under the means of grace, despite your emotional state, that God will, that Christ will soften your heart. Because you need, we all need the I am to open us up to be receptive to his shepherding. Those are the hallmarks of divinity in the passage. That they experienced in what, maybe 18 hours or something? It's incredible. You imagine how, you imagine how they felt years later after Christ had gone, maybe sitting together around a fire, eating barley loaves and fish, looking at the shore, thinking about that day on the, on the sea with the crowd and him walking on the boat, on the, on the water and getting into the boat and everything that happened, talking about how they now knew the one thing. They knew that Christ is the great shepherd, that he's the great provider and he's the great I am. And one day I'm sure they'll tell us how that felt. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you are our great shepherd, our provider, and that you are the self-sufficient one. We ask that you will draw all of us to the means of grace to either be gloriously saved or be daily sustained and kept in you, whichever is our need. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.